Less than 24 hours, Georgians will be under a shelter-in-place order. McDonald, though, said he did not know the man was handcuffed and was trying to use his foot to pin him to the ground so he could be handcuffed. If your friends, neighbors, or local organizations are not complying, report them to us. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Free Georgia Podcast. My name is Jake Green. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you have any questions about this episode, about the Libertarian Party in general, um, if you're in Georgia, um, make sure you visit lpgeorgia.com to learn a whole bunch about what we stand for and what the party is up to um, at this point in time. You can also, if you're not in Georgia and you're watching this, you can also go to lp.org to learn a whole bunch about um, our political party. Um, yeah, upcoming, we have an anti-surveillance pub crawl down in Savannah on September 30th from 7 to 11 p.m. So if you're in the Savannah area or you'd like to travel down to it, we'd love to have you. It's uh, If you go to banishbigbrother.com, you can learn more about what we're trying to do with uh, banishing anti-surveillance um, or banishing surveillance in general, digital surveillance, all sorts. Um, yeah, go to ban banishbigbrother.com to learn more. Today, I've got a friend of the podcast, friend of the party, uh, member of the Tennessee Libertarian Party, and uh, author, Mr. Dave Benner. Dave Benner, welcome to the podcast, brother. How you doing? Good, JK. Thanks for having me, man. It's been a while since we talked, but I'm excited, so... Heck yeah. For anybody who doesn't watch our Thursday night stream, Dave Benner came on, I believe it was episode like 25 26 somewhere in that that region and we talked about a whole slew of topics including what we're here to talk about today which is your book about Thomas Paine can you give us a little lowdown on like why you wrote the book <laughs> yeah i mean there's a few reasons but i would say that Thomas Paine is the most notorious and influential political radical in american history and you know, I guess the two predominant reasons that I wrote the book was number one, I didn't feel like much of great value had been written on Payne in a long time. And that's not to say that some of his bi biographers didn't do a good job. Some of them are really good, but a lot of them didn't really focus on what I consider his most radical political ideas. And that's what my book does. Um, and the second one is I just feel like there's so much in modern history and the modern course of political events that calls for more pains. We need more pains. So um, no pain, no gain. <laughs> right. I was about to say, I think we have plenty of pain right now, but it's a different. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, can you give us uh, like a, one of the things that you think Thomas Paine spoke about and wrote about um, that would be very applicable today that people don't reference enough? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the common refrain running through the book is that you don't necessarily have to have success at the ballot box to make tangible political change radically. In fact, Thomas Paine devoted much of his life just solely to spreading the ideas. He, he solely almost wrote pamphlets. He did some other things, too. He served as a kind of a temporary provisional delegate in the French Revolutionary uh, Assembly. But for the most part, he was just a master spreader of ideas. And if not for pain, um, I don't think that we've we reap the fruits of the American Revolution that we do, because prior to pain, the common people just weren't really engaged in the struggle against Britain. It was mostly seen as kind of an aristocratic, 
you know, American aristocrats versus, um, you know, Tories in England. So Payne lit the fuse of kind of the dynamite that set a lot of that in motion. And I think it's applicable to today because culture is such kind of an upstream to politics and with cultural changes and winning the cultural arguments, you will naturally have electoral victories. And that's what happened in the Americas in the 1770s and 1780s. And I think that would happen today if there was a shift. Interesting. So he, you're, if I got this right, you're saying he wrote like smaller condensed pamphlets more than he wrote like books or long form content. Is that kind of how it went? Yeah, that's accurate. But it, it we have to recognize that, for instance, like the rights of man, it was called a pamphlet, but it's that's a long tract. And that was mm. released in two parts. It's hundreds of thousands of words combined. But um, common sense for its part, I think its original version was something like 73 pages. So this is a very digestible tract that people could read, um, commoners, laborers could have access to it, et cetera. And most of his pamphlets were of that type. Um, Common Mm. Sense, of course, being probably the most famous one that Americans recognize, but he also wrote a lot on things like, um, you know, the dangers of fiat currency. There's a tract he wrote in the 1780s called Dissertations on Government, and it's one of the best hard money treatises in American history, but almost no one knows about it. So just an example. Interesting. Um, you know, there have obviously been tons and tons of very influential people and very brilliant people throughout time. Um, what was there something specific that allowed pain to connect? So like, uh, connect so heavily with his audience in, in the U S absolutely. Because he came from the commoner class pain was born kind of a lower middle-class artisan Um, He was the son of a stay maker. His father made stays, which were kind of like the structural underpinnings of women's corsets. And he dabbled in that for a while. He was a privateer as well. So he was not uh, privateering is essentially like a private kind of naval commander that looted vessels during the seven years (laughs) war, which we would know as the French and Indian war. But he came from that class. He was nothing like the aristocrats of even the American aristocrats like Washington, Jefferson, um, you know, all the landed gentry in kind of the American uh, aristocracy at that time. So he had the ability to mix and mingle with those people and communicate with them in a way that, you know, even Jefferson with, you know, how great of a writer he, he was, he couldn't. Neither could, you know, James Iredell and some of the other John Jay, some of the other pamphlet writers of that time. So it really makes him unique and kind of he carried that disposition for the entirety of his life. He was always concerned about the common man versus Mm -hmm. the elites and the elites of his time were landed nobility and people with uh, monarchical titles and things such as that. Interesting. You saying all that reminds me, I mean, he doesn't have the same breadth of work as Thomas Paine does, but this whole uh, Oliver Anthony situation right now (laughs) with this guy like launching into stardom over um, just one song that, you know, he seems like he's a really regular guy, came from the people, you know, lives out in the woods. um, And, you know, that song struck a chord with a ton of people and it's Mm -hmm. very much against the elites and for the common citizens so that's that's interesting so uh i guess my next question would be like what was there was there like a path for him to make it to the point where he was influential or like how did that happen from going yeah yeah. 
Well, without covering, you know, some a lot of the details that get into why he came to America, essentially it boils down to he wanted to start anew. He didn't, you know, find much um much of value in his life until he came to America. He his first wife died in childbirth as did the mm-hmm. child. Um he had several failed, you know, entrepreneurial uh, adventures he was a tax collector for a while in the british excise he was a british excise officer but he came over to america and soon found kind of the catalyst that brought him to the forefront of all this and that's because he quickly became editor of one of the most whig leaning which is basically a patriot leaning newspapers in the new world in philadelphia it's called the pennsylvania magazine and as editor of the pennsylvania magazine he dabbled in all sorts of different subjects but he was there right at the time where the imperial crisis with Great Britain was heating up. He came over in 1774. That was just you know months after kind of the, uh, the so-called Boston Tea Party and the intolerable acts were followed up with. So, um, you know, he dabbled in that. He basically wrote common sense as kind of, you know, his contribution to the Continental Army. His goal was to actually raise money for Washington's troops to buy mittens and clothing. Um, so, um, (laughs) that was written in the end of 1775 and he didn't expect it to be, you know, a total sensation, but it absolutely was. And he did everything he could to make it so without, you know, cause or concern for his own fortunes. In fact, he eventually relinquished the copyright to it and it was mass printed by thousands of printers. And he also made sure that it, you know, it wasn't very expensive at all. So, wow. Interesting. Um, did he have like any, who were, who are his like friends and colleagues that pe- people he would run with? Did he have anybody like that? Like that helped him with his, with his work? Um, as far as the writing itself, no, but he definitely had many friends amongst America's political class at the time. The, the more radical the person, the more friendly they were with pain. Um, Thomas Jefferson and him were lifelong friends, probably his longest um, longest term friendship in the world. He basically died as a friend of Jefferson and he didn't have many friends when he died, actually. Um, also, you know, Charles Lee, Charles Lee, famous person from that time, almost no one knows about. He almost had command over the Connell army. He was considered for that, um, but he loved the pamphlet Virginian um, Washington said, wow, everything in this, this works incredible. You know, you can see in his private correspondence, he was talking about that. Um, you know, People that were, you know, very hardcore zealots for independence tended to love pain. Um, some of who became like the more federalist leaning people, like Hamilton and Governor Morris, especially despised pain. They thought he was <laughs> a rabble rouser that took things way too far. Um, there was no sense of moderation with pain. And, you know, one of his critics wrote as a response to common sense is that pain is a crack brain zealot for democracy, which is <laughs> essentially the 1770s version of calling someone a white supremacist, by the way. So. <laughs> crack brain. Oh, my gosh. OK, well, that's interesting. It's fun to see how insults have changed over time. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you mentioned that you don't think Thomas Paine gets recognized enough nowadays. Um, what are what are some of the differences or similar similarities between him and some other political philosophers over you know over the centuries? Yeah, well, I, I think that Paine Paine did add some things to kind of the 
you know, the classical liberal tradition that had already preexisted him. In fact, like most of his beliefs, you can think of as being derived from people like Locke and Sidney, um, Algernon Sidney, if people are unfamiliar, but Locke, um, he eventually actually told a tale that he had never read Locke, but I don't believe that. I think he did read Locke and um, many of his ideas are extremely similar. He thought all people yeah. had the right to alter or abolish their government when it became too tyrannical. Um, he believed in meritocracy over any kind of, you know, hereditary distinctions and titles. Um, you know, he believed that people should in government should represent constituents. They shouldn't be kind of leading with a bullhorn. They should be representatives of people and defend their rights um, rather mm -hmm. than try to dictate and steal people's wealth and exploit them. Um, but uh, you know, there's, there's things about pain that we would not necessarily as libertarians look upon favorably today. And maybe I'll touch on that. Cause a lot of people, I don't think yeah. I'll know that. So I'll do that quickly. So one pain was basically, the creator of the income tax and germ. <laughs> wow. Many people might not realize this, but at the end of rights of man, part two, he proposed for Britain that there should be an income tax and that it should basically benefit poor people and the elderly and fund public works projects. Um, this was totally ignored in Payne's day and income tax was inconceivable, but he proposed it because he thought that Britain's system of taxation was onerous and basically, you know, mm. targeted poor people to the benefit of rich people. I think he was right to some extent, but uh, the prognosis, not so good. He also in a pamphlet called agrarian justice proposed kind of a, a precursor to the, U, what we would call UBI. Um, mm. Basically he, he proposed a scheme in which land would be taxed um, to fund an annual stipend to be given to all citizens within a place. Um, Andrew Yang actually brought this up on his presidential <laughs> campaign. And uh, I'm not a big fan of Yang, but uh, it's true. Like if you read that book, you can see that. So. Interesting. I was literally about to say, I wonder if Yang's ever going to bring Thomas Paine up. That is so funny. That's interesting. Um, yeah, man, that's, that's awesome. Uh, where uh, let's talk about you for a second. Um, how, like, you're an author. Um, what else do you do? And like, what other books have you written? Yeah. I mean, professionally, I actually work at a financial advisory firm as a business analyst, but um, you know, historian is my driving passion. I'm an amateur historian. I don't look at that as a negative. It's just my chief passion that, you know, mm -hmm. I work, I work on. So um, other than this book, I've written a book called compact of the Republic, the league of States and the constitution. And that is basically a genealogy of the U S constitution and a defense of America's decentralized political system and how that vision has been totally obliterated over time. I've also written a short book or a pamphlet, as you might say on the 14th amendment. Um, that's a uh, uh, kind of much smaller work, but, you can see on the site here, this is where my, my works are for sale. If my internet ever catches up, I am sorry. I'm on a mountaintop in the middle of Montana and Starlink can fail me from time to time. So <laughs> it's, it's trying to load. Um, how long did it take you to write the book on Thomas Paine? And like, what was the research, like research part of it? Like, Here's where you consider me maybe a glutton for punishment, a masochist, whatever you want to call it. But over four years, I read, I believe, 12 <laughs> different biographies cover to cover about Payne. And I've read all of Payne's writings, including the 
I believe 200 or so letters we have of him, which is actually a small amount. Like Jefferson, for instance, I think we have like 20,000 of Jefferson's wow. letters. We, we don't have as much of pain, but uh, man, did he write a lot of stuff. Eric Foner edited um, Payne's, all Payne's written works, and it amounts to a huge amount. So it took a long time. The research was thorough. If you read the book, you can see I cite basically everything, but I'm mostly citing primary sources because I kind of wanted to have my own take on Payne. I didn't mm-hmm. want to just like redo what his previous biographers have done. I got you. Now, are you someone who enjoys the process or are you just looking forward to the outcome? <laughs> kind of both. I mean, I love the process. It, I, I just love doing a biography and it makes me want to write another biography in the future. Um, you know, I'm considering possible subjects right now, but uh, I do like the research uh, process, Jake. Do you like that in terms of like your uh, your videos and your things Man, like that? There are times when I hate it and like generally for about a month after I get finished with a movie, I'll, I'll be like, I'm not making any more documentaries. I'm done with film for a few years. And then that month will go by and I'll be like, I need to make another movie. (laughs) It's just, it it is, I don't know. It's just in me, I guess. And uh, I just kind of started accepting that over the last few months and embraced it wholly. So I'm, you know, trying to, trying to grow the brand, trying to grow, how many products that I can actually make over time. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like, you know, like, like anything, some of the process is not going to be fun. It's going to be monotonous. It's going to be really tiresome. It's going to piss you off. You're, you know, for me, like your computer's going to crash and you're going to lose footage and you're going to want to scream. So, Dude. yeah. Um, what, uh, so you've written those two others. One you said is more of a pamphlet. Uh, what is, you mentioned a little bit about Compact of the Republic, but can you go into a little more uh, detail about that one? Yeah, sure. So Compact of the Republic, it's two big sections. The first trace is um, kind of the American constitutional system, which is based on written constitutions and a decentralized league of states where the states entered into a voluntary union whereby they accepted that you know the states are the the pillars of the general system as Oliver Ellsworth called them um, mm. and had the right to retain the, the ability to secede and to nullify unconstitutional federal legislation and why that's the case. So I went back to like the British tradition all the way from, you know, the Magna Carta forward of these key junctures in English history that the founders were very well learned in and understood why our system should be decentralized because in the past, you know, the British kings and the parliaments had been exploitative and and basically uh, ran roughshod over the localities. And then the second part goes into all the precedents, I think, that eroded that vision, that decentralized vision where, you know, most of the power would actually be in the states and not in the federal government, which it obviously is today, and mm. kind of goes into some things about, you know, the, the extension of executive power, um, the the growth of the federal judiciary to expand its power into ways that the founders never conceived of um, just this doctrine where Congress thinks they can legislate on every topic under the sun. And, you know, the sad thing is, is most Americans accept it at this point. Yeah, that is sad. That's really unfortunate. Um, what One thing that came to mind when you were talking about Thomas Paine is the fact that he had some very, some opinions and thoughts that were very contrary to libertarian philosophy, but you took the good stuff that he said, which I think is rare 
in these day, day like this day and time, um, this day and age where, you know, generally people will see one terrible thing or bad thing, something they consider bad about a person, like their philosophy, their thought, whatever it is. Um, and they'll just kind of throw them out and just mm. completely discard them. So libertarians I mean, I, are the worst at this, by the way. <laughs> It's infuriating. And like, we are definitely like, some of us are definitely the worst at that, but like, it's not just us that do that for right. sure. But you're, you're, you're not wrong. It, uh, <laughs> I really appreciate um, subtlety and, you know, taking good things and putting the good things that a bunch of different people have to say and putting it together and, you know, into, into one, because it's no one's perfect. No one does everything right. No one does everything in the exact same way that you would do things. And so, you know, trying to filter through some of that is, is really nice to do. <laughs> yeah, man, totally. If pain was in front of me now, I've told other people that have interviewed me, I shake his hand and, you know, compliment him on a job well done. There's things that mm -hmm. I don't like, especially when it comes to some of his, uh, you know, beliefs on the welfare state and his religious beliefs. So we don't have to get into that, but pain had very different religious beliefs compared <laughs> to other founders, but, you know, mostly it, it I think pain deserves a lot of praise and mm. um, you know what I, what I end the book with and I'm, I guess this is a spoiler, but I kind of end it by saying like, regardless of what you think about pain, his radical beliefs are generally what we live under today. We don't have monarchy. We, we do have a huge welfare state and um, you know, there's essentially universal suffrage almost every place on the, on the planet um, for yeah. better or worse. Um, whether you like any of those things or not, pain, you know, brought those ideas to the forefront when they were very unpopular. We also have slavery almost nowhere. And pain was a devout abolitionist. So um, whatever you think of him, he was very influential. That's awesome. That's interesting. Um, well, what uh, first of all, what uh, what's going on with the Libertarian Party in Tennessee? Is there anything that we in Georgia need to know about? Anything you'd like to spread the word about? Anything like that? Yeah, man. Um, LP Tennessee is, uh, has a lot of renewed passion right now. Right now, there's a few things we're working on. We're working on doing a ballot access lawsuit against the state. Um, that's being funded partially by the state, partially by the National Party. I know you guys have been through the ballot access rigmarole. You guys have terrible ballot access laws as well. <laughs> um, we're also working with an organization called um, TNTA. It's a kind of pro-gun organization. Um that we've kind of built a coalition with to oppose gun control that people are trying to start here. It's actually getting some national attention. Um, our, you know, legislature was kind of um, in the hotbed of that because we had a special session on it for a while that just ended without gun control, which is good. And then we're supporting defend the guard efforts here. So there's a nice. few things that are going on. There's convention planning for the next convention. You know how that goes. Um, yep. <laughs> but those are the, the few things there to uh, off. Okay. Awesome. Um, before we head out, where can people find your books? Um, where can people follow you? Yeah. Um, most, uh, I'm most active these days on Twitter. So at dbenner 83, you can see that in the, the video there by my name. Um, mm -hmm. Love to post there. Um, if you want to get the book, davidbenner.square.site. Otherwise okay. go to davebenner.com and it's that link right in the middle there that Jake has up. Um, would love you to pick up a book. I, I'm willing to sign them. You can request personalization options there. Um, nice. I will not sign it to socialism. I will not <laughs> sign it to Nancy Pelosi, but most other things I would sign it to. 
<laughs> That's awesome. If uh, if somebody hasn't read one of your books, uh, uh, which one would you suggest they purchase first? Yeah, I mean, I think the Thomas Paine book is the best written. Um, okay. That one I would recommend. But if you don't have much love for Paine or interest in him, Compact of the Republic is a more general, you know, treatise about the founding period. Gotcha. All right. Well, Dave, I really appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, yeah. Enjoy talking to you. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Um, wish I had shipped it to Montana so I could have been more prepared for this, <laughs> for this interview. Oh, that's cool, man. I'd love to talk to you once you do read it a little bit, but I appreciate that. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. And everybody, if you, uh, if you found this podcast interesting, um, if you want to learn more, you know, go to any of the sites, any of the th places that Dave just talked about. You can also go to lpgeorgia.com to learn more about the Libertarian Party of Georgia and lp.org um, if, you know, you're outside of Georgia to learn more about our national party. Um, make sure to tune in every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern for Liberty Libations, and we'll see you next week on the Free Georgia Podcast. Thanks, Dave. Peace out, Jake. Thanks, man. Peace.